Good morning. Um, this is like family here. <laughs> uh, welcome to you on the live stream. My name is Matt, uh, and I'm going to be doing the uh, facilitating of the chat this morning, the talking, um, the TED Talk-ish, if you will. <laughs> so we've got some ways to communicate with us. Um, I'm going to ask you a question first and uh, give you a little bit of time to respond to this. Um, you can respond to me directly with the number that's on the screen. It's coming. Um, and, or you can use the chat. Jeff is going to be monitoring the chat. He's sitting right here in front of me. He can just wave at me, flag me down, um, and let me know what responses there might be in the chat. Okay, so the question is, what would you do if you couldn't fail? A lot of things come to mind. I mean, professional sports immediately. But I'll give you some time. I'll give you some time to think about what is it you would do in life. It can be anything. It can be an achievement. It can be uh, a career. It can be whatever you want it to be. What would you do if you could not fail? Whenever you have that answer, just you can send it to me in text or send it in the chat. <laughs> or I'll take the mic around. I believe I would still do what I believe my career call has been, which is to serve and love people by teaching Scripture. I've always known that as a pastoral role in a church, but I was thinking about this the other day. Um, when Nina and I first met, before we were married and we were interested in one another and I, I think had dated once, gone, gone out once, <clears throat> we asked each other, so what do you want to do? Because we were both very committed to Christianity and to serving the Lord and so back then the whole idea of serving the Lord was really wrapped up in ministry quote what what are you going to be uh, you know preacher or pastor or evangelist and I remember saying that I want to be a teacher I want to be a traveling teacher and that's interesting in that my life has been spent in the office of a pastor, and it might just be this alliteration of serving and loving God and the deconstruction we've gone through that's actually getting me closer to those words that I spoke in my innocence when I said and declared, I want to be a teacher. I want to, I want to travel and teach the Bible. So that's interesting. I never said pastor. I didn't really know what a pastor was. And now that I think I know more of what a pastor is, I don't really want to be that. <laughs> I, I mean, I do. I mean, you know, what, what you're called to be, you are. But I, I don't want all the trappings, Matt, I think is what I'm trying to do. I, I don't want all of the traditional, evangelical, sort of westernized trappings that come with being a pastor of a church. I, I want to love people and I want to mentor and help them. 
And of course, that help comes most of all through Scripture, first and, and most through an understanding of Scripture as well as a, a, your proximity to Jesus and knowing Him. But I, I'm being verbose. I don't have any texts yet. Who else? Two questions, one for yeah. you. Okay. When it, the way you've put the question, it makes it sound like if I couldn't fail at anything that I do or one point or one thing I couldn't fail at, right? if I tried to do the one thing, it would not fail. Okay, so clarification. Um, I meant it to be vague. You can choose whatever you want. Okay. You can make it a life wide thing, so it can be like, I would, whatever, uh, or it can be a specific task or objective, something like climb Mount Everest or whatever. Couldn't fail. So there, it can be, what one thing would you do, or what would you do as a human? It could be either way. I would get involved in politics, but I have a question for him too. Okay, here we go. <laughs> in, in your situation, wouldn't you, if you knew it wouldn't fail, stop working a second job if you knew that you were going to be provided for if it wouldn't fail? First of all, I want to clarify that I don't think I'm a failure and I don't believe that what I've been doing has failed. So that's important, not that you're suggesting that. But yes, I, I do believe that if I could focus on just one thing, traveling and speaking and teaching, and, my, and, and that also was my sole income. I didn't need any other source of income. Yes, I, I would drop everything else, even including IT and, and photography and the things that uh, I have been a professional and proficient at for decades, but yes. I think Nina had one. <laughs> well, well, there's always I'd be independently rich and do whatever I want. <laughs> Wouldn't we all say that? <laughs> okay, here's what I would do now. I would be an actor and dancer. That's what I do. <laughs> I have a text message. Oh, okay. I have one from Jeff Peter. Uh, Jeff says he would be a radio DJ or a talk show host, especially on the sports side. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that would be that yeah. Would, I actually kind of have that dream too. I think that would be fun. I have a chat okay, so response from the chat. from the chat. Ralph says, "If I could not fail, I would teach the world to live in individuated unity toward the goal of maturity and manifesting the Christ." I interpret that to mean he would give his life to helping people know and grow and mature in Christ and manifesting Christ. Could you read it one more time? If I could not fail, I would teach the world to live in individual unity toward the goal of maturity and manifesting the Christ. I love that. I think, I think that one of the things that I would do as well if I couldn't fail is I would uh, I would share well, this message um, with everyone, if I could. Um, are there others? Today's message and in general, the message of love and acceptance. 
Yeah. Anybody else? I know Lisa would be a backup dancer for Rihanna. Or both. <laughs> they can both be backup dancers for Rihanna. A backup dancer for you? Well, I said that I would want to I mean, a backup dancer for you. She I would be a backup. I wanted to be an actor. Were you listening? No. No. I said, if I could do anything, if I didn't fail, I'd be an actor or a dancer. Yeah. So and she'd be a backup dancer. She'd be a backup dancer to you. All right. Okay. Anything else in the chat? Anybody no. else want to say? Okay. Um, I am actually along the, the same lines as Jim. I think I would run for president if I, if I didn't believe I could fail, or if I knew that I couldn't fail. Uh, I think that I would set my goal to become president of the United States. Um, knowing that I can't fail, I mean, I think there are a lot of pitfalls uh, and things that, that can set you back, including, you know, political lobby groups and things like that. I think... Um, I think there are a lot of things that could change for the better in our country, but I think that they're, the person we need to get there can't get there because of all the interference. So uh, that might be something I would choose as well. Also a lot of like little you know, personal things, like play in the NFL or play Major League Baseball or hike Mount Everest. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I can't fail, so time is not an issue. Okay, so the reason I'm asking this is because... Um, I think what I'm, what I'm going to address first today is uh, this feeling of weight, of pass or fail, you're doing well, you're not doing well. Um, and what I have felt for my entire life is that I was not good enough. Um, this, you know, and, and I'm going to go through this, where did it come from? Uh, and I think that a lot of this will be relatable uh, because I think this is not unique to me or my experience. I think this is a worldwide experience, regardless of what uh, country you live in, what world, uh, or what religion you believe. Um, I believe most of these things are universal. Um, so the title of this is Not Enough. Um, and there's this picture of a human holding the weight of the world, um, or just a bunch of rocks. Uh, this is kind of how I have always felt, and each one of those rocks represented something that I felt pressure to be or do that I was not doing or that was, I was not measuring up. Um, and some of the things I did measure up, but they were still a weight on my shoulder because I was trying uh, and because it was really important to me. I think there are several different areas where this, this is manifested, and it starts very early for me. Um, I had very early memories of my parents being very clear, saying, you must be a moral and good person, I think, as early as age three. So I want to ask all of you, what is the earliest memory you have of either someone telling you how you should behave or being disciplined for not behaving in a certain way? Now, I'll tell you a time that I was disciplined. Um, I was at school. I was in first grade. <laughs> you know where this is going. Uh, I was at school, and my brother, uh, who was a mischief maker, uh, we were outside for a recess of some sort or another, a very beautiful sunny day in North Glen. And the school that we were at was in a church, and right next to the church was an actual school, Westview Elementary School. 
And uh, I was outside with my brother, and he decided it would be a great idea to pick up rocks and throw them at the bell on the side of the school. And I said, you're right, that is a great idea. Um, and uh, very challenging, too, when you're, when you're just five or six years old to hit that bell that's way up on the side of the school. You know what I'm talking about. It was the side of the gymnasium, right? You know what I'm, right down that hill from the, and so we were standing on the hill throwing rocks and someone came out and uh, I was, I was uh, then punished capitally. No, no, uh, corp, corp, what's the, corporally, <laughs> they didn't kill me, uh, by my current father-in-law is the one who provided the, the swats. So I want you to think about a time. What's the earliest memory you have of being disciplined or encouraged to behave morally and good? And we have the microphone, so if you have it, and, and you don't have to share it. This isn't necessarily something you have to share. I just say, generally speaking, there was an expectation from a very strong disciplinarian father, even to the point of abuse with with a belt, uh, that we would be good. And good was often good was two sided. Good good was whatever he said, right, and expected in the home. And good was what I would hear at church. And we were made to go to church. That wasn't an option. We went to church we <clears throat> because we were made to go to church. Yeah, and that's, that's my almost exact experience as well. Strong disciplinarian father who, uh, yeah, did not take lightly to... behavior that didn't fall in line. And, and I would even add to what you said, moral, what you learned in church, what he said, but also anything that might embarrass him or our family, any behavior that might do that was also treated as incorrect behavior. If you were goofing around too much, if you, um, yeah, making too much noise in church, not moral in any way, but embarrassing. And you were to be punished. Okay, so it is important that you have uh, moral guidelines in life, and I think that's really important. But I think this kind of sets the foundation for um, internally how we process whether you are successful, whether you are a failure, whether you are measuring up, um, is this root of this is good behavior and this is bad behavior. This is what we, we learned at a very young age, most of us. Uh, now, early acceptance, I believe, was m very much, in my opinion, based on performance. Um, it was based on your behavior. And I think this, this goes to things like sports. This goes to things like friendships. If you are the fastest kid in your neighborhood, you're accepted. If you try and run a race and you get uh, whipped in the race, then you are laughed at and made fun of. And so the expectation is, you are acceptable if you can achieve, if you can perform. Um, and, and we get this from all different areas. You get it from your parents first, and then you get it from friends, uh, teachers, bosses, pastors, all throughout your life. The expectation of excellence 
and performance and meeting and achieving goals and going above and beyond them. And again, this is not to say that goals are not an important part of life, but what we're learning throughout our entire life is to measure ourselves as good enough or not good enough. Um, And maybe it's just me, maybe I'm the one who took this all too personally, but (laughs) uh, yeah, we'll keep going. I think church is another one. You mentioned church, and from a very, very early age, I went to in that same gymnasium where I was throwing rocks at the bell, I went to um, a gospel bill, and that's where I first received Christ. And then from that day on, it was, um, I was a Christian, and I knew that, and I wanted to be that, and it was never something where I was like, oh, I said that thing, but I w- didn't know what it meant. I knew what it meant. Um, but basically, from that day on, I was tormented by myself the sin in my life, the expectation, and every Sunday you would go, and they would talk about hell, and they would talk about um, uh, your behavior, and you have to behave like Christ as a five-year-old child, (laughs) and you don't even know what Christ behaved like, Uh, and so I think, again, what you're told is that you cannot measure up to God's standard. It's impossible. Uh, I think most of us remember the tracks with, like, the God over here, and there's the fire in the pit down below, and then you're over here, and, um, and then Jesus made a cross across the pit. And I was always a little unsure if I could use the cross or not. How good did I have to be to use the cross? And as it says here on the slide, you better try as hard as you can, or you're going to fail, and God's going to forsake you, right? He's going to kick you out. You're not going to make it into heaven because you weren't good enough. Uh, and, and, and you can go anywhere to any church, uh, any Christian church in this country and say, walk into to the church and say to the pastor, can I get into heaven by, by being a good person? And every single pastor will tell you, no, you cannot because you can't be good enough. But If you accept Jesus, if you say the prayer, and then you act like a really good person and measure up to all of these standards, try real hard to be good, even though you can't, then you can go to heaven. Uh, And that is the message that I had for at least 35 years of my life. Uh, And just, and I was in it too. I was, I I only went to to public school one day, or one one year of my life. Uh, I was in private school and homeschool the rest of the time. Uh, home was indoctrinated in deep evangelical Christianity, hellfire and brimstone from time to time. I went to a Christian college. I <laughs> taught at a Christian high school. Uh, I went on missions trips. I went to a Christian high school. It was all, I was, I was saturated with this message, and I always felt like a failure. I always felt like I wasn't good enough, and I was terrified, quite frankly, um, for most of my life that I was I was teetering on the edge of being good enough to walk across that cross and make it to God versus staying over here on this side or falling into the the fiery pit. Um, And so that that left a mark on me as well. And then school. Uh, I don't know if any of you were straight-A students. Um, I was not a straight-A student. When I was young, I was very good at school. Uh, I was actually in the same classroom with Lisa, we, she was in pre-kindergarten, I'm sure, and I was in like ninth grade, right? Because <laughs> anyway, 
Uh, yeah, we had, we had multi-grade classrooms, and so we were in the same classroom. Um, and I remember, you know, the stress of trying to get 100% on a math quiz. And I was, I was naturally good at math. I gravitated towards numbers and things that were logical and factual. Um, and even still, if I got, if I got a 96% on a math quiz, that tore me up, and I was like, ah, you know, I couldn't make perfection. Um, and then as I went along, I, you know, I, I, after that I went to homeschool, and uh, I would go to the, uh, every year we would go to uh, Silver State Baptist School to do our, I don't know, statewide something testing, you know, to, to get, you know, are you, are you learning the stuff you're supposed to? And again, it would be like you'd get this score, and the score was maybe 28 out of 40, and you're like, nah, I'm not very good at this. Go to high school, it's very competitive, it's a private high school. Um, I, was, I was below average, I was very mediocre in school, grades, and otherwise. Um, and that was difficult. I mean, I went to a competitive academic high school and it was very difficult for my self-esteem because I was, I was definitely one of the dumb kids at that school. Um, go to college. This is a, this is a fun one as well. Uh, I chose mathematics. Of course I did. Um, because, you know, as I was raised, you challenge yourself. You do something that's, that's noble and, and difficult and, and challenge, challenging. And so I chose mathematics, and I am... Uh, currently not ashamed to say that I had to retake at least five math classes um, as a college student. Now, D, a D in your major means you have to retake it. So they weren't all fails, they weren't all Fs, but you can see on this, uh, the report card here, poor Abby, can we get that back up there? <laughs> poor Abby, uh, she's not really all that good at math. Um, and that's not back up there. We'll get it. Okay. Um, but the F, when I look back, you've got A. What does A stand for? We don't know. What's B stand for? Is there a, is there a word that goes along with B? C? D? Well, we jump over E. We don't, we don't stop it. We don't use E because we found a letter that tells you exactly who you are. You failed. And if you got an A, you might know what that means up here, but there's not a word that describes A, B, C, D, but when you get to F, you failed. Um, yeah, so Abby, this, this is a little stock photo I found in poor Abby. Um, first grade, this is almost exactly the mathematics sheet that I remember getting a 96 on and feeling bad about that. All right, enough of that. Um, and then there's societal expectations. So you have, um, do you own a house? Do you own a car that, that is good? Do you uh, have a family? Are you married? All of these things that are societal expectations. Um, we're friends with a lot of different groups of different ages. One of the new groups that we've kind of found um, is our workout group. We have a gym that we go to, and we have like a bunch of new friends from that group, and there are quite a few people in there that aren't married, and there's almost this stigma, like the, 
the unmarried people that are in their 30s, and it's like, why aren't you married? There's this expectation, right? Why aren't you married? Um, having things, having a family, looking on the outside like you have it together, and this American dream of, I have the car, the house, the job, the family, I have great kids, all of those things are an expectation of our society, and when you go outside of that expectation, you are somewhat shunned. You can find your own group, right? You can find your 30-somethings single group. Um, you can find your divorcees, right? There's groups of divorcees. If you go to a church, there's probably a divorce group if it's a big enough church. Um, but all of those things, they come along with a stigma that you're not the way you should be. And by the time most of us get to adulthood or into our middle adulthood, our self-esteem has taken a beating from life. And I don't know about everybody else. I can speak for myself. I have always felt inadequate. I have always felt like I wasn't enough. And I, I think when people look at me, if, I, if I'm gauging the reactions and responses of other people, they think he's average, he's doing all right. Um, and I can look at some of the achievements that I've done. I graduated college and I have a decent job and a car and a house and I can look at those things and say, I'm doing all right. But at the end of the day, I have always felt insecure about who I am. And what happens is you start to feel like it's more painful to fail than to be honest with who you are. There's a psychological term called cognitive dissidence, and cognitive dissidence is what we experience when we feel an uncomfortable, uncomfortable tension with who we believe we should be and how we are behaving or how we have achieved or how what we have done. Um, and so you have these expectations from all different areas of life, and you are trained into that from your parents, from your teachers, from your pastors, your Sunday school teachers, from your friends, from society itself, you are trained into feeling like you are not good enough. And I will tell you that when I was in college and I failed classes, I did not admit that to anyone. I felt so stupid. I felt like I was not good enough to be a mathematician. And I persevered through that, and I eventually got my math degree. But failing those four or five classes, I lied to people. I didn't tell them that I failed any classes. I would tell them that I had a different GPA than I had. <laughs> there was a point in time when I had a GPA of 1.6 in college. Now, to be fair, I had, a, I had a car accident where I missed a whole semester, and I, I got Fs for all of those classes. Um, I got, because it was after the drop deadline. But, again, see here, I'm making an excuse. I didn't share that with anybody. Um, but I felt stupid. And I would go to class, and I would hear the mathematicians teaching this stuff, and I would go and try and understand it, and it was very, very difficult, and I felt stupid all the time. I did not get a grade above B in any math class that I ever took in college. And then I graduated, and I can go and tell everybody that I'm a mathematician, but I don't ever admit 
but I just barely made it. Um, and so we have this, this need, it's too painful, right? And then there are, there are moral issues, um, things that happen throughout your life that you are ashamed of. Uh, I know that for me, one of them, when I was a nine-year-old boy, I was a paper out, I was a paper delivery person, and I found a stack of pornographic magazines on top of someone's trash, and I just took that thing and put it right in my paper bag and kept delivering papers, and I had a porn addiction from that day until my mid-30s, and I lied to everyone about that. I would never... Occasionally, you would get to a group of, of men in the church, and you would have an accountability partner, and you would say, yeah, I have an issue with pornography, and oh, I'm going to hold you accountable to that, and you're going to tell me every time that you make a mistake, and, and the first few times you tell them, and you see the, the look on their face, and they did really, you messed up again? I thought we talked about this. I thought we knew that this was something you wanted to get out of your life. And then I started lying. I just started telling them, yeah, I'm good. It's been months. And by the grace of God, I was delivered from that through very difficult experiences in life. But there are many times in my life where it was more painful to admit what I was doing or who I was because I knew I was a failure. And I didn't want anybody else to know that. And I even started to lie to myself. And that is... What happens with cognitive dissidence, eventually it becomes too painful to admit that you are a failure. So the results of cognitive dissidence are, this is the next, yeah, you got it, you're on it, Jeff. Um, so the more a person wishes to conform, the more likely they are to succumb to cognitive dissidence. And I was a conformist. I wanted to be, I wanted to be accepted. I wanted everybody to think that I was on the track, that I was achieving highly, that I was, uh, <laughs> Jeff's, Jeff's doing things back there. Uh, people quickly adjust their values to fit their behavior to avoid being at odds with what they believe. And so, you know, sometimes you, you're doing something, you're, you have a behavior, maybe it's uh, something that you know is unhealthy for you, like smoking or whatever, and then you say, oh, I just do this once in a while, and you start to you start to explain it away, knowing that it's not good for you. Uh, this type of self-deception has been linked with many negative health issues. So they've, they've linked it with Alzheimer's and dementia, and also some forms of cancer. People that regularly lie to themselves and convince themselves, uh, or lie to other people. And it's a, so, so what, it, what it's showing you is that it's an internal struggle. It's something that is at odds within you and you're battling with yourself. The interesting thing that, I, that occurred to me when I was writing all of this is that after I left school, nobody gives a crap about my GPA, right? No one has asked me about my GPA since I was in my 20s, right? Um, most of what exists in my mind is there by my own choosing. The idea that God has an impossible standard that we can never measure up to. God never had that. But at times in my life, I could feel God's anger. Anybody else? Could you feel God's anger when you behaved a certain way? Could you feel God being angry at you? It was all in my head. I made it up. So, where do we go? 
the truth about you is this. Before I formed you in uh, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. Now, this is God's message to Jeremiah, but I think it applies to all of us. Um, don't forget to check in to the airline. <laughs> um, so, scripturally, there are, there are many of these things. Uh, just as he chose us bef- uh, in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. Holy and blameless, he chose us when, when, when we achieved it, when we made it to perfection, before the foundation of the world, before he even breathed rocks into being or light or water, before that, he, um, he chose us to be blameless. In Hebrews 10, 14, it says, uh, for, one sa- for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Uh, now this one is, I love this verse, because I love the part, the being made holy. This is not implying that, um, that you are perfection, that you don't have to pay attention to what you're doing, that you don't have to work on who you are, the core of who you are. Um, but it does say that he's already made you perfect, right? But you're being made holy. Uh, and I, I'll come back to that idea in a little bit. In Romans 8, 35 through 39, we'll get to eventually, but this is 35 through 37. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? Now, all of those things I can kind of replace in my mind with. Does it mean that he doesn't love us if we got bad grades? Does it mean that he didn't lo- doesn't love us if we threw rocks at the school bell? Does it mean that he doesn't love <laughs> She looks at Jeff. Jeff, Jeff didn't love me at that time. Um, does it mean that he doesn't love us if we aren't the status quo? Have a, a family, a wife, a husband, a house, a car, everything that you're supposed to have. So I can insert all of those things in here. As the scriptures say, for, the sa- uh, for your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all of these things, overwhelming Victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And it goes on in 38 and 39. I am convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Revealed. It was always there. It's just revealed through Christ. You have always been loved. You have always been perfect in God's eyes. You are exactly as you are today. You are accepted. You are loved. 
You are already as valuable as you can ever be. You are known, and nothing can separate you from love, the love of God. There are a couple more quotes here that I have before I finish up. Um, I don't know what this does for you, but for me, when I can let go of everything, it changes my perspective. It changes my ability to accept myself. And when I can accept myself, that's when I know it's okay to try again. Even if I fail, I know I'm going to be okay. And I think that it's really easy to give up on trying. It's easy to give up on working with other people because of the failures that you've had. But when you know that you are accepted exactly as you are, then there is no ability to fail. You cannot fail. Because it doesn't matter what you do, you are still accepted exactly as you are in God's eyes. Um, when you remove the backpack filled with pressure and unrealistic expectations, all of a sudden, that weight is released and you can stand tall and approach life with more excitement, curiosity, and self-compassion. I don't know about you, but I have never had good self-compassion. I always felt like that was weakness. Anybody else? That if you, were, if you were soft on yourself, you were weak, you were giving yourself excuses. And I think there's a way to be self-compassionate without giving yourself excuses. Being honest. That when you are honest with yourself, you avoid that cognitive dissonance. Dissonance? I said dissonance. Dissonance. Cognitive dissonance. You avoid that. And you're able to see yourself exactly as you are. And if you know you are accepted 100% by God all the time, no matter what, then there is no fear. You can be 100% honest with yourself. And you can try again. Finally, when you believe that you are acceptable no matter what, you can be honest with yourself. And that is when you can be the most powerful to grow. You are enough. And you always will be. So that's it. Um, thanks for participating in my TED Talk. And I hope uh, for those of you out there, this is something that is powerful to you. I hope that um, you are able to find self-love, self-acceptance, like I have been able to find in recent years. Um, and I am very, very, I feel a weight lifted off me, and I have for a few years now, that I don't have to perform, that I can be honest and tell you when I fail. Um, this may not be visible, I don't know. But uh, I, I spilled coffee into my computer and onto my shirt. Right when we got here, I was getting out of the car and I was holding things and, and I, my first response was, how embarrassing, I cannot be in front of camera. And I just thought about like, I'm gonna take off my shirt and I'm gonna go in the bathroom and scrub it and I'm gonna find a, a, a hairdryer or something, a heater that I can dry it out so there's not a big wet spot here. But no, guess what, hey, spilled my coffee. It's okay. I'm accepted exactly as I am. Messy shirt and all. <laughs> all right. Um, so I'm